0: Good afternoon. This is Greg Lois. Thanks for joining me today. We're going to be talking about risk transfer in New York workers' compensation cases. I hope uh, you're uh, done with all of your Christmas shopping. Everything is ready to go. You got your stocking stuffers and you're ready to settle in for about 20 minutes talking about uh, risk transfer. And This is really intended to be like a workers comp sort of 101 overview of this topic. So we're going to talk about what is risk transfer, why is it important, what kind of cases qualify for risk transfer, and when we should be really thinking about getting our reimbursement or subrogation interest protected. Uh, I'm going to give some practical advice at how you preserve that reimbursement right. I'm going to talk about the dollar for dollar impact that obtaining risk transfer will have on your workers' compensation cases in terms of reducing exposure or getting a recovery. And of course, I'm gonna talk about the differences between reimbursement and subrogation. Not exactly the same thing. Uh, This presentation is gonna be in two parts. The first part's really gonna be about reimbursement, and that's where the claimant is pursuing their own claim, their own third-party claim against a tortfeasor. And then we're talking the second part about subrogation, and that's where we're gonna step into the shoes of the claimant and pursue an action on their behalf. All right, so this is totally live. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, If you have a question, please type it into the box, and I will do my best at the end of the presentation to answer as many questions as I can. I often find that the questions are the most important part or the best part of the presentation because people ask questions that other people might be sitting there having but maybe not typing in themselves. And so uh, ask your questions because even if you think it's sort of a simple question or it only pertains to your case, you'd be surprised how many other people's uh, cases that it's going to pertain to and and you might enlighten someone else. So uh, please, it also makes it more fun for me. It's not just me talking to the camera. Uh, It gives me a chance to give you some direct feedback. So uh, the point of these webinars is always to talk about how we reduce exposure for our employers and our carriers in new york and over the last year and this is sort of a summary one the last topic of the year we've been through a lot of topics we've talked about how a safety program or uh, light duty programs can help us reduce exposure we've talked about medical best practices and disputing unnecessary medical care or maybe unrelated body parts can help us reduce exposure we've talked about limiting lost time claims that was our july Uh, Presentation. We then talked about challenging permanency, both scheduled loss of use and loss of wage earning capacity. That was our October and November presentations. Uh, And today, uh, last last, we also this year talked about uh, having to litigate. So that's like you know your worst your worst case scenario. We got to litigate these cases. We also talked about post trial actions. Now today we're going to talk about risk transfer. And risk transfer is a fun topic because it's an area where we're getting money back. Uh, And if you're a risk professional that's managing a caseload, this is one of those moments where you can really do a great thing, either for your employer or for your carrier, and show them that you're recovering money for them and reducing exposure. So it's something we can do proactively, which makes it a little fun. All right, so let's talk about reimbursement first, and then I'll talk about subrogation. So reimbursement, our first question when a new case comes into us, and as a risk professional, you should always be thinking, is there a potential here for an action against an actual tortfeasor? Right? Is there an actual tortfeasor? Did someone actually harm our employee? You know, in the motor vehicle context, you see that all the time. Hey, there's somebody else driving the other vehicle, or the slip and fall on someone else's premises where there is a dangerous condition or a defect in the construction, uh, or the use of a tool or a piece of machinery that causes someone an injury, and uh, maybe there's uh, the the uh, piece of uh, machinery or the tool was defectively designed or maintained. So. First of all, we're always going to think uh, in a reimbursement context, hey, did the claimant file that lawsuit against the person they, that, that harmed them? And in the reimbursement context, the answer will be yes, they have. Um, was that injury the result of someone else's negligence? I mean, sometimes, I mean, you could file a lawsuit for anything, but really, does this make sense? Does this sort of track? Is there some nexus between the instrumentality or the condition and the harm that befell our claimant? Um, and we think this should be considered early in the case. So most of the risk professionals we work with are amazing at spotting opportunities for risk transfer, but every new case that comes in, we always do an independent evaluation to say, wait a second, is there an opportunity for a recovery here? So we have an absolute right to reimbursement under the statute. Uh, It is Uh, a reimbursement right which is built into Section 29 of the New York Workers' Compensation Law, and that section states that the uh, employer or carrier is entitled to complete reimbursement for all monies paid in the workers' compensation claim. There's a little comma, and the comma says less the cost of litigation expense and attorney's fees. So basically, every single thing we pay out, every penny we pay, we get back minus the attorney's fee, which is usually the biggest deduction from that amount of money, and the cost of litigation. That's really the cost of filing fees, investigation fees, maybe records costs, those types of things that are typically incurred by plaintiff's attorneys. Section 29 is self-executing, which means you get the benefit of Section 29 in all of your cases. You don't have to file an affirmative pleading. Of course, we think the best practice is to do that, but uh, is to serve in notice of our Section 29 rights, but you do not have to do it. So preserving your Section 29 reimbursement rights is something that we're going to do here for you at, your, at the time of intake. Again, the statute is self-executing, uh, but we absolutely like to put everyone on notice that, hey, we're going to be demanding reimbursement at the conclusion of your civil action. So what we do here is monitor the civil case, which is making sure we know where it's standing. Has it been filed? What court is it proceeding in? And what is the general status, the litigation posture of that case? We're also going to serve a notice on our adversary saying, hello, we're aware of your civil action. Our right needs to be taken into consideration. Now, if this sounds complicated, it really isn't. Uh, This is something that is done by paralegals here that are assigned to the workers' compensation case. They are checking the New York civil docketing system. It's an electronic docketing system, just like eCase. And so you can go in there and track cases and even get uh, email alerts so that we know what's happening when the case reaches a major milestone. So the major milestone in a civil action in New York is the Request for Judicial Intervention, the RJI. That's really gonna put the case on the calendar and get it it listed, and that's where we're really gonna start paying attention to these matters. All right, how much do we get back in reimbursement? I think I already told you. We get back everything we've paid, of course, less the cost of attorney's fees and litigation. Now, there are some scenarios that we gotta talk through. So the first one is where the third party award is greater than our payment made, we get everything back less attorney's fees and costs, and that's the Kelly decision. Where the third-party award is less than our payments made, we get everything, less attorney's fees and costs, as per Kelly, and then we get a future credit on futures, uh, medicals, or payments of indemnity made. That's as per the Bissell case. Only where the future benefits due is easily determinable. In other words, we're talking about a, uh, a permanent residual disability award that's permanent total, uh, or uh, an LWEC, we know exactly how many weeks. Does our lien get reduced by future benefits avoided? And that's the Burns case. All right, how do we maximize reimbursement? Because that's our key. You've got the ideal situation. You've got the claimant out there filing their own civil action against an actual tortfeasor who hopefully has a deep pocket. And we're allied with the claimant in this moment. We want the claimant to go and recover as much money as possible because that's all gonna end up back in our pocket reimbursing our employer or our carrier. So first, my advice is always, don't start negotiating with the civil attorneys. Don't start talking about uh, compromising your lien. Don't do any of that until they've got a settlement demand pending. I'm sorry, settlement offer pending, okay? I wanna see how much money they're being offered. I don't wanna just go out there and start compromising, go, well, we paid out a half a million dollars in the worker's comp case, we'll take $200,000 today. Don't do that. Wait to see what the offer is that they're getting. And when they say, hey, look, I valued the case, this or that, and they'll also tell you things like, oh, the case is weak, it's really a garbage case. Greg, you guys should compromise your lien before we even get the offer. No way, I'm sitting back there saying, no, no, you're in the driver's seat. I'll wait to hear what the offers are, and then I'll weigh in. Next handle that common threat that we're getting all the time of abandonment and if you're an experienced risk professional done this for a few seasons you'll have heard this Uh, a plaintiff's attorney will call you up and say look i've got this great offer in the third party case for a million dollars but if you guys don't agree to only taking back a hundred thousand dollars i'm going to abandon this case because you know it's garbage and and if if you guys are just going to suck up or take out or demand reimbursement of everything you're due which might be the entire settlement." my guy's not interested in doing, it, he's not going to do it. That's an empty threat. In 21 years, I've never seen a plaintiff's attorney turn down a settlement offer because the all the money was going to flow back to the workers' comp carrier or the employer ever. And the reason for that is the attorney still gets their fee. So we're not caring about the person, meaning the employee, getting a double recovery because that's what that is when you compromise the amount of your reimbursement. Last thing I'm going to touch on, Uh, is that there is no such thing as a one-third, one-third, one-third rule in New York. Uh, Sometimes you'll have a plaintiff's attorney who'll call you up screaming and yelling, saying, we always do a third, a third, a third in New York. That's where a third goes to the claimant, a third goes to the attorney that represents them, and a third comes back to us as reimbursement. Absolutely not. Okay, no. That's a rule of thumb. Some people do it, some people don't, but absolutely don't. We don't agree to that. So... You can use these advantages you have, and and those advantages are really monitoring that civil claim, getting involved, getting in early, asserting your demand for reimbursement early, and really being informed. That's gonna help you get back your maximum reimbursement. All right, next step, subrogation. What is subrogation? Subrogation is where the claimant in a worker's compensation case has been injured. They've been injured because of the negligence of another, that's the tortfeasor, and, they've decided, I'm not going to bring a civil action against them. And there could be lots of reasons. Uh, It could be, oh, that's one of my clients and I don't want to sue my client. Or it could be, that's my friend who was driving the car that struck me or the the other vehicle. I don't want to bring. Or there could be personal reasons. I I don't want to be involved in lawsuits. So I'm not bringing it. In New York, you can subrogate. That means you step into their shoes and you can bring the claim on their behalf. Um, you have the same rights and the same limitations as the plaintiff in those cases. So let's talk about what some of those things could be. The first is the statute of limitation is the same. The claimant has a three-year statute of limitations. If you're injured in a negligence action in New York, you have three years to bring your action uh, in Supreme Court. Uh, If you're injured in New Jersey, you have two years to bring your action. So you got to know that these statute of limitations can be different. But When we step into the shoes of the claimant, we have the exact same statute of limitations. So what kind of cases can we subrogate? Well, the answer is just about anything that you can imagine. Any case, any injury, any negligence, any harm because of something that was caused by an actual tortfeasor. And I'll give you some examples. Here's an interesting one. Uh, a, A typical example would be something like a car accident where another vehicle struck our employee and harmed them. Uh, you know, it's clearly driven by another person. Uh, They, you know, our person, uh, our employee would have had the right to sue them and we're going to step into the shoes of our employee and sue them directly, okay? Clear case. But how about a case where someone has an accepted, admitted, established workers' compensation claim and during the course of active treatment, they're going out and choosing their own physician. The physician does malpractice. Maybe they sew them back up and they leave all the sponges inside them uh, or some of the other surgical tools inside of them. Uh, clear case of malpractice. That is would be grounds for subrogation because it is related to our workers' compensation claim. It serves to increase our exposure in the workers' comp case. So we can certainly subrogate on their behalf in that respect. Uh, we can also seek contribution from the employer in grave injury situations, uh, uh, and that would be other co-employers of the uh, same claimant. So How do we subrogate? First of all, there is a notice requirement for subrogation in New York, and that's one of our limitations. 30 days prior to filing our action, we have to send a letter to the claimant with very specific uh, language in it saying, hey, we're gonna file the suit if you don't, okay? We also have to wait one year from the subject accident before before we can step into their shoes and subrogate. So it's really one year plus 30 days that we're gonna uh, uh, be waiting, so that's a limitation. That language to the employee is going to say something like this, hi, you were injured in a workers' compensation case. A year has elapsed, we're six months from the last payment of compensation. Uh, We are now going to step into your shoes and file a civil lawsuit on your behalf. If I don't hear from you to the contrary, we're going to go do this. I also put language in mind that says you should also be aware that our goal in the civil litigation that I'm going to file in your on your behalf is not to get the most money I can obtain. It's simply to get enough money to reimburse my client, the carrier or the employer, for what they paid out in benefits. Now that letter almost always triggers the plaintiff to go out and get their own attorney and prosecute the case themselves. And that's absolutely what we want them to do, right? That inures to our benefit, let them go file the claim, let them go um, spend the time, effort, blood and treasure to get that recovery. So that's something that we encourage. What are the limitations to subrogation? Well, again, I already said the the statute of limitations. We also can't subrogate against a first party benefit. And so that means in New York, uh, where the person has their own insurance policy or their own coverages, we can't go after that. So for example, we can't go after their own uninsured motorist policy or their own underinsured motorist policy. And that's because any insurance which provides a first party benefit to themselves, Uh, we can't subrogate against. Another great example would be in a death case uh, where we have a compensable death claim. The fact that the person has life insurance, which also pays them, we can't subrogate against the life insurance. Uh, Under insurance law 5105, we also can't subrogate uh, or there's a carve out for our subrogation uh, uh, reimbursement for the first party benefits due to the claimant. And that usually is the $50,000 first party benefit that is due to them. And I can make... uh, Uh, there's a lot of examples of that. And again, I think we already talked about this. We have to wait that year plus the 30 days before we can file that subrogation actions ourselves. So what are some of the problems with subrogation? Well, if you're thinking about this uh, as with your uh, risk professionals hat on, you're thinking, well, this is great. We can step into the shoes of the claimant. We can pursue these actions. But you should also think about it from the perspective of, the defense attorney who's going to step into the shoes and actually pursue the subrogation. So there's a number of problems that we face. Number one is uh, that the co- uh, claimant's not necessarily going to be the most cooperative. They've already decided they don't want to pursue this claim. And in the insured context, this we see this is uh, particularly problematic. An example is the insured owns a, work, uh, 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 a cleaning service and they slip and fall Uh, due to some kind of um, defect or dangerous condition at one of the premises of the customer of the cleaning service. And they don't want to bring a claim against their own client, their own customer often. So generally speaking, we've got issues with the cooperation of the claimant. The second issue I have is ethical issues, and those are mine. The fact is, I am stepping into the shoes of this person and bringing a plaintiff's action on their behalf but I'm actually not interested in recovering the maximum amount of money I can for them. I am simply here to protect my client's interest, which is the self-insured, the insured, or the carrier. And I just really wanna make as much money as I can to get their reimbursement back, right? So I'm not gonna go offer giant awards for pain and suffer and punitives and all sorts of damages. I don't care about that stuff. If the case is worth $10 million, but my reimbursement lien is only $100,000, I'm not going after the $10 million. I might just compromise and settle with the carrier uh, on the other side for $100,000, that's all I need. Nobody else is getting the excess money. I'm not I am not serving the claimant as their plaintiff. I'm serving the employer or carrier or as their segregation counsel. Um, the other challenge we often see is where the claimant is unrepresented in the workers' compensation claim, which is fine, right? You can proceed pro se in workers' compensation court. Uh, that's fine, and that's, uh, that's a relatively common thing, but we have circumstances where the claimant is unrepresented in workers' compensation court, and then I'm stepping into the shoes and serving as their plaintiff's attorney in the civil action uh, that's pending in Supreme Court, and that's problematic because in one court, I'm saying they're fine, they're ready for the Olympics, or they're not entitled to further benefits, or the case is resolved, in the other ca- court, I'm saying they're very disabled, and they're entitled to uh, more compensation or a money award. So it puts us in a difficult situation. Not one we can't navigate, but it's just not as easy as when they get their own attorney. All right, let's talk about some handy takeaways, some things that I wanted to stress today. The first thing is, again, there is no such thing as one-third, one-third, one-third. Whether you're subrogating, whether you're demanding reimbursement, whether someone's coming offering to compromise with you, there is no such thing. And it's it's a, something that gets me very frustrated, and as a risk professional, I'm sure you've had to deal with this where the uh, plaintiff's attorney is saying, hey, I've been doing this 100 years, and we've always done a third, a third, a third, and I get that. like That's the rule of thumb that people used to do back in the day, maybe. I don't know. I never did, uh, but that's absolutely not a rule. It's not a law. It's not a statute. It's not a regulation. It's not even that common anymore, so our advice is uh, there is no such thing as a third, a third, a third. If your plaintiff's counsel comes to you and says, hey, we're going to settle this this case over here, but I need you to agree to take a third, a third, a third, you sit back and go, why? Explain to me why. I don't see why I would do that. All right. Next, Um, when we are looking at reimbursements and they're pursuing their own case, look, I'm going to make a demand at some point that my client gets reimbursed, that we're getting our money back at that time i think it's best practice for your defense counsel to also give you their opinion as to what the litigation risk is how good is that case what do we expect them to recover and there's lots of ways we can do that for you and help you estimate that uh the last thing is obviously when you should uh and we do see this doing being done very well generally by our clients uh they are noticing the opportunities for risk transfer early cases come over to me and say greg please defend this case By the way, we see the possibility for risk transfer. Can you also make sure that we're covered on that end? We're happy to do it. But really an early spot for these opportunities for risk transfer should not be missed. This is a great opportunity for us to get some money back for clients, get money back for carriers, money back for self-insureds and employers. And that makes a big difference because it will absolutely offset their losses. All right, that's my prepared discussion. Let's jump into the questions and see what we got today. All right, so far I see none. Maybe people are still typing, so I'll give you a second or two. And while we're typing, let's talk about what we're gonna do next uh, next month. Next month, January, we're gonna come back and we're gonna do a year in review. We're gonna look at all the topics we did in uh, 2021. And I'm also gonna talk about new and emerging case law new trends, new things that we're gonna see. We're hoping next year to be getting the new medical treatment guidelines and have them be applicable. Uh, Obviously the board is uh, trying to implement onboard limited release next year, so I'm gonna be talking about that as well. So please join me in January when we go over our year in review. And I'm looking over here at questions. I still don't see any questions, so okay. This was a fun topic to talk about. I hope everybody has a great Christmas and a happy new year, and I'll see you next year. Thanks, everybody.